Hey, folks, this is Kevin. Just a few words before we start. Listen, if you are new to the Risk Podcast, you've chosen the perfect episode to start with. This is the best of Risk number four, where we'll take a look at our favorite uncensored true stories from the past 50 or so episodes. But when you're done with this episode, be sure and check out the best of Risk number three that we released within the past couple weeks and our fantastic episode called Live from San Francisco. Taken together, those episodes are the perfect introduction to the show. And one more thing, if you find that you like what you hear, please spread the word. Tell your friends that if they want to hear the most surprisingly candid stories, unforgettable stories, they got to check out the Risk Podcast too. Now here's the show. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Stephen Bernstein, behind me now. Today's episode is the best of Risk number four, where we'll take a look back at some of our favorite stories from the past year and a half. You know, those kind of stories where you might hear people saying, hey, don't share that in mixed company. Well, that's what we do here. Every now and then we like to put out one of these special episodes. But don't forget, a lot of Risk fans' favorite episodes are the all-star episodes full of famous people. You can find those in the album section at iTunes. You have to do a search for Risk All-Star. They're $2.99 each. But when you buy those suckers, you're helping keep Risk running. Now in just a bit, we're going to hear a story from the fabulous Lisa Lampanelli. She told a story at the Risk Live show in New York. You know Lisa from Comedy Central. She's working on a Broadway show right now. But before that, we're going to hear from my friend Allison Moon, an author, sex educator, and kinkster extraordinaire. You can find Allison at talesofthepack.com. And here she is now with a story we call Foxy Ladies. I was invited to tell a story for this storytelling event in San Francisco called Body Storytelling. The theme was girl on girl. And because I'm kind of a notable queer, uh, Dixie, the the woman who runs the event, asked me to tell a story. And immediately I said, yes, I love telling stories at this event. And so I said, yes, before I knew if I had a story. And so I decided that I didn't have anything. And if I was going to tell a story, I needed to come up with something fast. So I decided to throw a ridiculous lesbian orgy.
I had never read The Secret before, but I'm pretty sure I know how it works. Like living in California, you kind of pick it up. So I think it's that you like declare an intention powerfully and then the universe, you know, reciprocates. And so I sent out the invitation and not five minutes after I send this invitation, I hear a voice from downstairs calling up, Allison, hey, it's my roommate, Lydia. She says, hey, um, my mom's staying here this weekend. That's cool, right? And immediately I say, no, no, it's not cool. I'm throwing a ridiculous lesbian orgy this weekend. No, your mom can't stay. But then I hear a voice in my head saying, Allison, you called this into being. You can't just send it away. And so I say, actually, you know what, Lydia? Yes, your mom can stay here this weekend. That seems like a perfectly rational response to my invitation. <laughs> I send out the invitation on a Tuesday, and on Friday night, my apartment is filled with 25 half-naked women. And I already consider this a success, right? Like, that happened. Um, and immediately, the ridiculous just starts happening. We have Hitachi races to see who, who can come the fastest with Hitachi magic wands, the Cadillac of vibrators. Uh, we have Hitachi Jeopardy, which is really hard to do. You're vibing off and trying to conjugate French verbs at the same time. It's not easy. So that was interesting, but not really story worthy. And if you've ever been to an orgy, you know that there are kind of a couple of like energy flows that happen, right? The first hump, right, happens really soon after people kind of show up. Everybody's really nervous and excited and people are just kind of going a little bit crazy and trying to like get the party started. So that happens usually pretty early. And then there's like a lull, right? And then later, another peak happens when everybody's finally asking for what they really want and finally screwing the people they really want to screw. That's usually like around 2 a.m. when people start realizing that they actually have to go home eventually. So it's like 1.45, right? The energy is just ramping up to that and we can start feeling that we're something's gonna happen. So my friend, somewhat of a furry, decides that she wants to have a fox hunt. And she's British, and it's the night before the royal wedding, and so we're all feeling a little bit sentimental about Britain. So we're like, yeah, let's do a fox hunt. So she explains the rules in this perfect British accent. So we're going to have some hunters, and we're going to have some hound dogs, and there's going to be a hunt mistress who leads the hunt. And as she's explaining the rules, my friend shrieks, oh my god, wait! And she runs to her bag, and she pulls out a bunch of animal hats. And she's got a panda bear, and she's got a tiger, and she's got a fox, and she's got a wolf. I have a thing for wolves. I wrote a book about lesbian werewolves. It seemed perfectly legitimate that I should be a wolf in this fox hunt. So I put on that hat, and I start feeling the furry energy move through me. I am starting to get into it, right? And so at some point, she tells us also to put on strap-ons, right? Because whoever wins, whoever finds the fox, gets to fuck the fox. So we all have to be ready to fuck the fox. So we're starting to get whipped up, right? She's explaining, like, in, in the real fox hunt, you, when you find the fox, you cut off its tail and stamp your forehead with its blood, right? And we're like, ooh, none of us signed up for blood play. This is not okay at this orgy. And she says, no, when you find me, you're going to rip the bandana out of my panties, and then you're going to fuck me. And we say, oh, okay, yeah, totally. We can totally do that. That sounds perfect. So we're all starting to get whooped up, right? So we've got the, we're making the noise, 
and I'm like doing my full-on hound dog thing. Huge racket. People are watching. People are laughing. We're making all sorts of noise. We're getting really ramped up, right? And then as we're doing the in walks my roommate with her mother. And so we're in this like, hi. And we all kind of wave like kids at a slumber party. And Lydia's mom walks in. She kind of takes in the scene. She says, okay, hi. Okay, all right. She walks to the kitchen, grabs a beer, and walks into the guest room, closes the door. And that is the last we see of her for the night. So she closes the door and we're like, okay. Right back in. <laughs> so we sound the trumpet and Foxy gets a head start. And now, like my loft, I live in a loft. It's kind of big, but it's not like English countryside big. So she gets like a five second lead, but we are right behind her, right? So we all start chasing after her, and the hunt mistress is getting into it. Hunt mistress Bunny Rabbit. She's got her little bunny ears on, and she's leading the charge. So she runs into my partner's office and sniffs. We're all getting into it a lot. We're kind of feeling the, the vibe. And so she sniffs. We look very quiet, creeping. She's not in the office. Then we run into the living room upstairs and we kind of sniff around, look around, listen, nothing. And then we creep towards my bedroom door. And we're standing in the door frame, all of the animals. And we hear a little rustling. And then all of a sudden, Foxy bursts from my hamper in an explosion of my dirty underwear, leaps onto my bed, and Bunny Rabbit is right there. And she grabs her by the wrist, and she drags her to the floor. And I just let my hound dog instincts guide me. And I just sack her really hard around the waist and pull her onto the floor. And she is fighting me off. She is kicking and screaming and biting and scratching. And everybody's screaming, flip her over, flip her over, flip her over. And so I flip her over so that she's face down on top of me. Her face is buried in my tits. And I foist her ass into the air. And Bunny Rabbit grabs the bandana from her panties, holds it defiantly above her head, and then throws it to the ground. And then with her other hand, reaches onto my bureau, pulls down a condom, and rolls it on to her strap-on. And at this point, I realize, oh my god, this is a gangbang. And so, Foxy is buried in my tits, and Bunny Rabbit lives up to her namesake and gives it to her really, really good. And she's still fighting the whole time, by the way. And all I can see of her, I've got big tits, and she's wearing this fox animal hat, and all I can see of her is this little fox face staring up at me from this hat, and these little mendicant eyes, and I'm thinking, this is amazing. <laughs> this is my story. <laughs> so Bunny Rabbit gives it to her really good. And then it's Blondie's turn. Blondie gives it to her really good. And then it's Tiger's turn, and Tiger gives it to her really good, and right around the time that Tiger has given it to her, Foxy finally starts to relax into this experience. <laughs> and so she's kind of rolling with it, and she's still on top of me, and I'm kind of rocking, lying on top of my, a pile of my dirty underwear, just kind of getting a nice massage on my back from all the fucking that's happening right on top of me. <laughs> and then it's Panda Bear's turn. And Panda Bear really is having a good time. Something about the way the harness is just hits her in all the right spots, and she is having far more fun 
than I think anybody else at that orgy. She's loving this. And again, Foxy's still buried in my tits. And so all I can see of her is that fox face staring up at me. And then cresting over her shoulder is a little panda face. (laughs) That's all I can see over her shoulder. So I'm watching this go down. And I think the secret works, right? Like, I declared that I wanted to have a ridiculous lesbian orgy on a Tuesday. And on a Friday, I have my friend has a furry scene and is getting completely reamed by five women wearing animal hats. And honestly, honestly, I think the secret has more power than I thought because I got a panda to mate in captivity. And I consider that a success. Whoever finds the fox gets who fucked the fox. It's a good thing I saved my last year's Halloween costume. (laughs) And I thought this was going to be a dull day. When I used to work the comedy clubs in New York City, I would work this particular club and I would always notice there was this old, old model Cadillac that would circle the building every time I was there, real slow with one guy inside. So I called the owner, I said, hey Al, what's the deal? Who's that guy driving by the club? And he points to a headshot of a pretty good looking Italian guy on the wall holding a pencil. And he said, that's Big Frank. I said, all right, a pencil, that's hot. He can write. That's an upgrade for Lisa Lampanelli. <laughs> so one night, the car finally stops, and out walks this guy, and I realize why they call him Big Frank. I am not lying to you. He was 400 pounds. Think about it, folks. That is 17 Sarah Jessica Parkers. <laughs> And I glance back at the headshot, and I'm like, holy shit, that ain't a pencil, that's a pool cue. (laughs) Guy is fucking fat. But you know what? (laughs) Let's be honest. There's sloppy fat, and there's sexy fat. And Big Frank was that fuckable fat, you know? Because first of all, he always gave off that vibe like he was in the mob. Like he always just looked mobbed up. And I always felt that was very sexy. Like if I got out of line, he might crack my head. And I get out of line sometimes, so that was pretty fucking cool. So he asked me out, and of course I have to say yes, because be honest, he had been driving around the building. And ladies, nothing says love like stalking. So he shows up on our first date. He shows up looking all hot and whoppy, and he's all sexy. And he was fat, and I was fat, and it didn't freaking matter, you know? So I looked at him, and he was wearing a leather vest, and I'm like being nice. I go, ooh, I love your leather vest. And he goes, yeah, there are no cows left in Pennsylvania. I go, oh, he can take a joke. Ends up, his skin was as thick as his neck. This guy could laugh at himself. It was the best. And he always made me laugh. You know what else was cool? Frank always made me feel safe. Ends up, he wasn't really mobbed up. He just kind of thought he was. And one day, he leans over the table and he goes, if he ever needs something, don't worry about it. I'm connected. 
I'm like, yeah, you're connected to a fork, you fat fuck. <laughs> and he laughed again. And he's like, no, if you even need, I know a couple of guys. I'm like, yeah, Ben and Jerry, you piece of shit. <laughs> and he laughs again. So this is the kind of guy I need. Somebody who could laugh at themselves. Also, let's be real. I ain't a fucking small person. I loved taking pictures with Frank. Because next to him, I swear to God, I was a waif. I was Kate Moss. I was home close, a tiny dancer. <laughs> Fuck good. And let's be real, man. The best thing about Frank at 400 pounds, he was that one boyfriend who would never call me fat. Starts to dawn on me. All my life, I had two obsessions, food and men. Frank was one-stop shopping. <laughs> he was a guy, but he had clearly a thing about food. He's that combo platter of delights. He's like that general store out in the woods that carries ice cream and bait. The combination's kind of disgusting, but it felt right at the moment. So we're dating, we eventually move in together, and seriously, life is good. We had so much fun. I had everything I needed under one roof, a guy who made me laugh, a guy who loved me, and I started feeling better about myself. I started feeling like I could take little chances, my career started taking off, I started playing places that didn't have the name Chuckle or Hut in the name of the place. <laughs> And even on a bad day, Frank made me feel better. I'd come home and I'd go, Frank, Lucian won't let me say cunt on stage. And he'd go, don't worry, you want a dinner? And I'm like, yeah. And he would make everything my Italian mother would make. He would make the meatballs and the pasta and the sausage. And you feel better, honey? And I'd be like, no, I don't, not yet, Frank. And I'd go, I'll tell you a story. Now listen to this. Frank might not have been the best comic in the world, but he was the best storyteller on the planet. He would tell me this one story when he had to once hook up a mob guy with a birthday entertainment party for his kid. The mob guy comes into Frank and he says, hey Frank, I want entertainment for the six-year-old's party. And Frank goes, you want a comic? The guy goes, that's bullshit. He goes, what about a magician? He goes, fuck that Frank. And he goes, how about a unicycle? The guy goes, sounds good, book it. <laughs> the day of the party. <laughs> Frank's sitting there with all the mob guys smoking their cigars, like little kids are running around. The guy dressed as the clown wheels out on the unicycle. He's juggling them, he's happy, oh, everybody's thrilled. Except the mob guy leans over to Frank and he goes, hey Frank, where's the unicycle? Frank goes, that's a unicycle. Guy goes, you trying to fuck me? And he goes, no, you asked for a unicycle, that's a unicycle. He goes, that half a broken bicycle's a unicycle? And Frank goes, yeah, yeah, it is. And he goes, that ain't a unicycle. A unicycle is that horse with the horn. <laughs> Frank goes, that ain't a unicycle, that's a unicorn. And the guy, Frank goes, that unicorn don't exist. He goes, well, it better fucking exist or I'm killing that goddamn clown right now. <laughs> 
you know, I don't know how even Frank ended the story. Every time he told it, it was a different ending, but I didn't give a shit. It always made me laugh, and it always got me in a good mood. So we're living together. Frank's fine. We decide one day, oh, we got to get insurance. We go to the doctor for a physical, and I hadn't seen Frank with his socks off in a long time, and he takes off his sock, and one of his toes is really fucked up. Like, not normal fucked up like all your guys' feet are, because it's freaking disgusting. I don't know what you think you're trying to pull with those toes, and those balls are even worse. But he takes off one sock, and his toe is like gangrenous and screwed up, right? Doctor says, look, man, you have advanced diabetes. That toe's coming off. I know, right? And he goes, and you gotta cut out everything that's bad for you. This has gotta change. We get in the car, it's completely silent. We're both really tense. And I go, listen, Frank, we gotta do this together. Let's do this, come on, man, we could do it. I said, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm giving up cake, cookies, pasta, no more of those goddamn Sunday dinners, I'm not having it. Let's do it, man, we gotta do this. And he looks at me and goes, you know what? I decided to, I'm gonna give up some stuff. And I'm like, what? And he goes, Soda. <laughs> and I'm like, soda. He goes, yeah, it's got a lot of sugar in it. I go, so's all that other shit got sugar in it, Frank. And he goes, I don't care. That's what I'm giving up. I go, look, Frank, I am a woman who has very high self-esteem, high goals. I have a seven-toe minimum. <laughs> Another one of these goes, you're out. Let's do it, man. I can't do this by myself. But you know what? No matter how much he tried, Frank couldn't do it. He couldn't change. I'd come home, there'd be half-empty eaten pizzas. There'd be like the empty boxes from cakes. Half the dog was gone. <laughs> I forgot to tell you that part. Frank had a dog named Christina. By the way, how much of a fucking wop move is that to have a dog named Christina? <laughs> and I would wonder, we went through so many drive-throughs for hamburgers and shit. Every time we'd go to a toll booth, the dog would attack the toll collector because it wouldn't toss a hamburger into the back. <laughs> That's fat, okay. But the food wasn't the only thing that bothered me. You know, Frank didn't really have any goals. You know, okay, he was content. He was satisfied. He had lived with his parents till he was 41. I get it, that's Italian. Jesus did it till he was 30. <laughs> was he Italian or a fucking Jew? I don't know. But to me, it sounded cute to say it, so it's in. No. <laughs> So there's a difference. In this business, there's road comics and there are city comics when I was growing up. Road comics are always those guys I looked at as having no hope. Like the guys who would do the road, little clubs in Bangor, Maine, or Cleveland, or wherever. And it's kind of sad, because they'd earn their money, they'd go home, and they didn't really want to do anything more. But I had like these bigger dreams. I wanted to get on TV, you know? And I thought I was gonna do good, you know? I said, oh, maybe I could even be in my own show one day. That'd be awesome. But Frank didn't want it. Frank just didn't want to change. He just wanted to be who he was. One day I'm flying home, right? I was actually doing a gig where they paid for the flight. So I hear the stewardess come on 
and she says, if you're flying with someone who's dependent on you, put the mask on yourself first and then put it on them. I couldn't help Frank. He didn't want to help himself and I couldn't do it for him. When the plane landed, I'd never unpack my bags. I moved out. Thank you. We just heard from Lisa Lampanelli, and this is Lisa Mitchell behind me now. Well, the thing about these best of episodes is that we can't feature some of our very, very favorite stories because they're just too long to include in a compilation. But it's very worth mentioning them. There was, for example, Danny LaBelle's story, the mayor of Mitchell Gardens, about how when he got a job at a nursing home, he ended up falling in love with so many of the people he was working for. And we had this great talk, and I said, Merry Christmas, and they both rolled out their wheelchairs to the hallway, and this is like one of the moments where I, I can't describe how good it felt. As I'm walking to the elevator, I hear one of them say to the other one, he goes, you see that guy? That is what they call a cool guy. And I don't think I'd ever been called the cool guy before. <laughs> and I don't think I've ever been called the cool guy since. But I just got back in the elevator and I was like, damn, this is like the greatest part-time job in the world, you know? Then there was Laurel Holland's remarkable story called Spindrift in the episode Life or Death about how over 20 years after her father disappeared, his remains were finally found. I still recognized him. His mustache was still intact. His teeth were still intact. I recognized the shape of his mouth. And that was, that was the mouth that told me stories when I was little that sang to me when I couldn't sleep. And it was the most peaceful coming to terms that I have ever experienced to know that the story was real. And one of the most shocking stories ever shared on the show was Nancy Sullivan's account, not just of how she was molested between the ages of five and eight, but about how years later, when she came out to her mother about it, her mother insisted she was lying. She's like, tell me the truth right now. You can't lie about something like this. This is a horrible thing that you're talking about. You have to tell me the truth right now. What's going on? And I'm like, that is the truth. I don't want to be in a dress, in a wedding, with this awful person that did this awful thing to me. How could you just not believe me? (laughs) And then there was Martin Moran's story, the tricky part 
about how decades after he was molested, he went to find and confront the man who had caused him so much confusion and pain. And he looked as though somebody had hit him. He, he, he hunched over in his chair and he said once when we were shopping, you were riding in the shopping cart and you got a box of cereal off the shelf and you said, let's get this, Dad. And there was this huge silence. I'm like, I really cannot believe that I said that. And he said, do you, he just asked me, do you remember that? And I said, no, I do not remember that. And then he said, maybe it was just a slip that you said, Dad, but it was one of the happiest moments of my life. I nearly fell through the floor. And something about it was so shocking and pathetic and heartbreaking. I just found myself reaching out and taking his shoulder. And on a lighter note, there was my own story, Kevin Goes to Kink Camp, about how on a dare I went to a sex festival and found I was one of the only gay men there. And so, at the age of 41, I decided to have my first sexual experience with a lady by the name of Strap-On Joe. And we're sweating up a storm, and I'm sounding like King Kong. And she's egging me on, and I went into that realm where you just feel out of control and happy to be there. And pound, 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 pound. And finally, the explosion. There have been so many amazing stories shared with us on our podcast. It's well worth going back to listen to them again. Now, before we get back to the stories, I just wanted to say a few words about one of our sponsors. You know, Risk and the Story Studio, we're a small business. And so we know that mailing and shipping are a big part of running a small business. But it's a waste of time to be running to the post office all the time. And time wasted will get in the way of growing your business. So use Stamps.com instead, like we do. With Stamps.com, everything you do at the post office, you can do at your own desk. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. Now, in just a bit, we're going to hear a story from my dear friend Lee Harrington, the co-author of the book Playing Well with Others. But before that, we're going to hear from Sam Mullins, a Risk fan from Vancouver, who sent us a recording of him telling this story at a show there called The Flame. We love when fans send us recordings of stories told at shows around the world. So without further ado, here is Sam Mullins with a story we call Get Cool Fast. So, Stesha was my best friend in the entire world. From the time we were very little, it was just me and Stesha. Like, you know those bathtub pictures that, that parents take where it's getting close to bedtime and they throw all the kids that are roughly the same age in the tub at the same time to save time and water? It was always, it was always me and Stesha in the tub. We were best friends. But 
One day, when we were about 11, Stesha came up to me and she told me that her family's house was for sale and that they were moving to Hawaii permanently. And I was completely devastated. I couldn't even imagine what life would be like without Stesha and her freckly little face, you know? <laughs> all, all the pictures from when we were little, it was just me with my knobby arm around her and her buck teeth, like, and just like that, she was gone. So that first year that she was gone, uh, we only talked a few times when our families would call each other on special occasions and we'd like pass the phone around, everyone would talk to everyone and Stesh and I would have a quick little awkward conversation. I say awkward because we were, we were getting to be that age, you know, where suddenly if your best friend's a girl, it kind of enters into this strange like sexual context where, where your genders kind of get in the way of you just being best friends, you know, like you're a young man and a young woman and, and, and talking's a little bit difficult. So, um, I got used to life without her, and a couple of years later, before I knew it, it was the summer that I turned 13, aka the summer before high school, and which is a really big summer, because if you think about it, you need to prepare things on the walls to go into a new building with like anti-drug ads and there's like <laughs> condom dispensers in the bathrooms and when you're sitting in the classroom looking out the window instead of the familiar jungle gym with a slide, there's four guys wearing bandanas hotboxing and Acura Integra. So, so my plan for the summer was pretty clear. I needed to get cool fast. <laughs> Um, I, I, I want to, to wear the right things, to think the right things, to do the right things. Like, I, I, I wasn't even concerned about having my own unique style. Like, that first year, I just wanted to walk in already the epitome of what a high school boy was, you know? Like, I wanted to shed my elementary school self. So I, I went out and I bought a skateboard, and I was really bad at it, so I, I just carried it around with me everywhere. It was, it was more of an accessory than anything. And uh, I, I started listening to some new music, and uh, I, I learned all the words to the Limp Biscuit song, Nookie, before I even knew what a Nookie was. And uh, I started, I, I got my first... Uh, shaving razor and you know to shave off my lifetime's accumulation of facial hair which was about a millimeter of of white blonde hair that was invisible to the naked eye you know get cleaned up and I was doing push-ups and sit-ups and learning some some guitar and uh, I was learning how to handle my voice cracking uh, you know the, the secret to not having your changing voice crack is to just not be excited or enthusiastic about anything ever you know, I needed to learn how to play it cool so that I'd be ready to talk to girls. Pardon me, to talk to women. So, so it was in the middle of this get cool fast regimen when one day my mom uh, burst in and she's like, hey, uh, Stesha's on the phone, pick it up. So I pick it up and Stesha's like, hey, Sammy, guess what? I'm coming to Vernon this summer to visit for a few weeks, and I'm actually going to be in town for my birthday. And I was wondering, since I don't have a house in Vernon anymore, and since you live on the lake, I was thinking maybe I could have my birthday party at your house. And my mind was reeling. This was perfect, because 
the best part of having a girl for best friend is the birthday parties. Like, at every one of Stasha's birthday parties growing up, I was always the only guy, and I used to act like it was a drag, but it was the best. Um, it, it was wonderful. So now Stasha's asking me if I wouldn't mind if she brings her 20 beautiful friends over to my... Her, her beautiful French immersion friends, which, in Vernon, that's as exotic as it gets. So they're gonna, they're gonna come over and put on their bathing suits and swim at my house? And I don't have to lift a finger? Like, like this was perfect to me and this whole birthday would serve as like a test at the end of the summer where I can prove to myself that I am cool and I am ready to talk to girls. The stars were aligning. So, it's the day of the party and all the pretty girls are showing up. And everything's going great, you know. I'm playing a, a burnt CD. I just burnt on my new CD burner. Uh, it was like all the coolest music I could think of. It was mostly just Blink-182. And, uh, and um, we were all like swimming in the lake and eating barbecue. And I was like talking to the girls and, and catching up with Stesha. And I, I was doing my best to sit in like a semi-reclined position with, with the sun hitting me at the right angle to accentuate my abdominal muscles. <laughs> because even before I went to theater school, I knew the importance of good lighting. Um, so, um, I'm, it's like a little bit later on, and all the girls are out on the dock, and they're all laying in the sun, and two of them are at the end of the dock, and they're hitting a volleyball back and forth, and they hit the ball into the water. And they're all like, oh, I don't want to go in the lake. I'm all, I'm all warm and dry now. And I'm like, oh my God, this is my chance. <laughs> Time to be a hero. <laughs> so I stand up and I'm like, I'll get that for you. <laughs> and, uh, and I like dramatically take off my sunglasses. And my plan was to, not to merely just hop in the water and retrieve the ball. No, no, no. My plan was to run, to sprint as fast as I can and jump as far as I can. Because even at that age, I knew that that's what women really want. Is someone that can run and jump far. Right, girls? Um, so... So I took off, and I'm, I'm running down the center of the dock, and there's girls on both sides, and everyone's watching me. And, uh, like, I might as well have had a cape on. I felt like such a hero. I'm running down the dock, and with a few feet of dock left, trouble. Because we were swimming for a couple of hours, so the surface of the dock was really wet and, and slippery. And, and I slipped, and I hit the deck, literally. But... I had enough momentum from my heroic sprint that I was now sliding on the surface of the dock. Now, had I just slid off the edge and into the water, it would have been totally fine. I would have been like, that didn't even hurt. I'm gonna go and get the ball now. But that isn't what happened because there was a nail up. And the nail cut me from here 
to about here. And about here, it caught onto my bathing suit. Now, had the bathing suit ripped and then I fell in, it, it would have been okay. Even if, even if it fully caught my suit and it ejected me from the suit nakedly into the lake, I truly believe that I could have brought it back. And I would have been okay. I would have been like, wow, what a freak accident. Could you pass me my trunks? I'm gonna go and get the ball now. But that isn't what happened. Because the good people at Quicksilver make too fine a product. And my trunks didn't rip. So what happened was, I went over the edge, and I swung, and I hit my head on the pillar, and my legs were straight up in the air, like kicking like mad, and, and I'm splashing around, my head is half underwater, and my penis is out. Side note, George Costanza was in the pool. I was in the lake. I was in the lake. Um, so I'm upside down and I think I'm drowning and I don't know what's happening. I'm in fight or flight and I'm splashing and what does one do when you're in what you perceive to be a life and death situation? happened next, I have to give it to you second hand because I was underwater. Um, but legend has it that my mom was inside making a potato salad and she heard me calling for help and she snapped into action and she knocked the green sliding door off the track and she was hurtling over lawn furniture and weaving through girls and she got to me and she pulled me to safety in a matter of seconds. And I was so confused, I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> Shit, what, what the fuck? And I'll always remember, my mom whispered in my ear, honey, quit cursing. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm like covered in blood and I'm shaking. And I remember, I looked out at the lake and I could see the ball, it was, it was long gone, it was floating away. But, the movie Castaway hadn't come out yet, so I couldn't even redeem myself with a well-timed Wilson joke. <laughs> so I, I turn my attention to the girls and all of them are half-heartedly trying to conceal their laughter. <laughs> and I thought to myself, high school is gonna be the best. <laughs> Thank you. Get cool. I wanna bust. Bust cool. I wanna go. Go cool. You play it cool. Play it cool. Cool! That is what they call a cool guy.
When I was in high school, I was raped. I went over to my friend Connor's house, which is not his name, but it's his name for the story. We were part of the same Dungeons and Dragons group. Like we were both just uber nerds and we were playing Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the computer game and playing other Nintendo adventures. And in the middle of it, and this is back when I was female uh, expressing, in the middle of it, he forced me down on the ground and used my holes in various ways, shape and form and left the room. And I ran home in the middle of the, the afternoon. I remember trying to pull back on my underwear and skirts clinging to my thigh and running. And then finally stopping and just sitting down because I didn't know how to process the whole experience. And it was really interesting to me because there was no logic to it. It was one of the things that really struck me about the whole experience. A, the fact that he wore a condom during it. But B, it's not like he had been flirting with me. It's not that anything in that direction had possibly happened. It just was so incongruous. We knew each other, but it wasn't like we were best friends. It wasn't like there was any sexual history. It was just strange. Later that year, my parents got divorced and I moved to a different city and I just tried to move on with my life. And I, I did so fairly well. Flash forward about 14 years. <laughs> I'm at a BDSM club in Seattle, and I'm sitting there in the uh, food area, hanging out with friends and talking and all that kind of stuff, and I go for a wander, you know, because when you're at a kinky sex space, it's like, okay, what else is happening in here? Let's look at all the different adventures. Let's see what's going on. So I pass the spanky spanky scene, you know, walk past the people who are having sex, and I walk past the people who are doing mid-air crazy rope suspensions. And then I wander past this room where a guy is on his back, getting fucked from one end by a guy and being fucked from the other end by a guy, and there's a chocolate cake on his stomach. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And I continue past to go out to the smoking area. And I realize that the guy who had the chocolate cake on his stomach was my rapist. And so my brain stopped. Because, <laughs> I mean, what do you do with that information? So I left the smoking area and I sat down in the social space and drank a lot of Dr. Pepper and ate a lot of red vines because what else are you gonna do? And you know, half hour, hour passes and he wanders by me, still covered in chocolate cake because you have to go through the social area to get to the showers. And so he uh, goes to the shower and he comes back out and he pauses at the table I'm sitting at and says, this is gonna sound really weird, but do I know you? And at this point I'm male presenting, I'm going by the name Lee, I look like a dude, but he's like, do I know you? And I said, yeah, but when you knew me, you knew me under the name Bridget. And his jaw dropped. And he stopped for a period of time that I have no idea how long it was. And he said, this is going to sound really presumptuous, but would you be open to having a conversation this evening? And I thought about it and I said, yeah, actually. Yeah, actually I am. And so he's like, because I've got to go check in with my tops. I don't want to abandon them. But yeah, I'm like, yeah. And so he wanders off and goes check in with his tops. He comes back a little while later and tentatively sits down. He's not sure 
what to do because I'm not sure what to do. And it's just one of those weird moments. And he said, would you be open to me sharing my story of what happened that day? And I said, yeah, actually, that would help a lot. And he's like, this is going to be really weird. Where I'm like, actually, I did a lot of therapy about you <laughs> and about our encounter. And I've worked through a lot of my demons around it. And right now, no, it's just really interesting to see you again. And I said, okay. And he told the following story. When he and I knew each other, he was 16 years old and I was 14. When he was 15, his parents found out that he was gay. And they sent him as good Mormons to a reprogramming camp in Utah. And he endured restriction of food, restriction of sleep, electroshock therapy, and other treatments. And he was there for most of a summer. And it was horrible and excruciating and heartbreaking. And he came back. And his mother said, oh, yay, you're going to be a normal teenage boy. This is fantastic. And a year had passed the day before I came over to play video games when his mother said to him, I guess the programming didn't work. I think we're going to have to send you back. And so the next day he went and hung out with his only female friend and he thought about it and thought about it and went to the bathroom and put on a condom and came out and used me and took the condom upstairs and threw it at his mother's bedroom door and said, fuck you. I can fuck girls if I want to. And a year later, he ran away from home. Now he's a gay activist in the Northwest. And I remember that he couldn't make eye contact with me for most of the conversation. That it was him looking off to one side as if watching a television set and transcribing it for me. I got a view into his brain instead of him and I going back in time together. And I think that made the story safer. Because if he'd been looking at me, I might have seen him who he was before. And neither of us were who we were before. You know, I... I wasn't the busty girl who played video games. He wasn't the nerdy boy with way too many pimples and fear in his heart. We weren't those people anymore. We were, we were adults who had each lived really rich and crazy and fantastic and horrible and heartbreaking lives. And we were in a different place. And if I had run into him six years earlier, I would have punched him in the face. I had had so much anger and resentment and trauma. And I said, would you be open to me telling my version of the story? And he said, yeah, yeah, I'd really like to. And so I talked to him about running home and stopping and how I'd written volumes and volumes of poetry about him and about that skirt that I was trying to pull back on. And I told him that I had really intense fantasies now about being held down and used because I had my first orgasm with him. And he stopped and he thought about that. And then he looked at me and said, can I ask a question? And okay. He's like, so, so you've transitioned. You're, you're a dude now. And I said, yeah. And he said, I don't mean to laugh, but does that mean that I've never had sex with a woman? <laughs> It was so absolutely absurd that here we were as a pair of guys talking about when he'd raped me when I was a woman. 
or a girl, more accurately. And we fell over laughing and we looked at each other and said, this is stupid. (laughs) And we shouldn't be laughing about it because it's wrong, but we're both laughing. And we hung out and talked and talked and spent time together and caught up on each other's lives. And I had a realization that, at least in my reality, there's nothing that doesn't happen for a reason. That I endured this really traumatic moment in my life and in doing so got to help save someone else's. And I wouldn't change a single thing because I got to save Connor's life. And that's, that's worth it. We still talk on Facebook. And what's really weird is that since we're both gay men now, there's a part of me that's debated flirting with him. And that's kind of broken and fucked up, but kind of beautiful and sweet at the same time. And I haven't gone there, but there's a little piece of me every once in a while when he makes a post or whatever that goes, oh, he's actually not that bad of a human being. He was just in a really, really hard place. And his hard place took me into a hard place for the next six or seven years. It's something that transformed both of our lives, but we never said that sentence to each other because I don't think it needed said. It was what it was, and now we're who we are. And I'm okay with that. is all for this special episode the best of risk number four that was lee harrington something called the other side of the story you can find lee at passionandsoul.com and this is fort union behind me now with a song called kingdom remember if you're new to risk to check out the best of risk number three and our recent Live from San Francisco episodes. Tell your friends to check the show out as well. You can find us at risk-show.com. On Twitter and Facebook, we're at Risk Show. On Twitter, I'm at the Kevin Allison. When you visit risk-show.com, you can submit your own stories. 
You can find out when our next live shows are happening, see videos of some of the live performances, find the credits for all of the episodes, the links to the websites of the storytellers and musicians, and learn more about our school at thestorystudio.org. We don't just put on these live shows and podcasts, we teach people how to tell stories. One-on-one, group workshops, online video courses, corporate workshops, and much more at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. In the chili, well, That's a unicorn! Well, it better fucking exist or I'm killing that goddamn clown right now.